Welcome everybody to Spirituality Adventures. This is a non-judgmental place to explore spirituality, and we're so glad you're here. This is a viewer and listener supported podcast, so we greatly appreciate your support. If you're watching on YouTube, be sure and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Be sure and like, share, and subscribe to any of the social media content platforms that you're using. And then if you go to our website, spiritualityadventures.com, you can make a one-time donation or with a monthly subscription, you'll gain access to our bonus content. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in. Welcome everybody to Spirituality Adventures. So glad you joined us. We are uh, we are privileged to have Greg Ely, Pastor Yay. Greg Ely with us today. Thank you, Greg. Thank you. I can't me. remember when we first met, but it's been I oh, do. Over oh, do you? <laughs> yeah. Remind uh, me. I first met you um when we did it was two thousand and ten. Okay. And we were doing the Convo Hope for the first time. Okay. And um, I was introduced to you by Gina Hanna. Oh, nice. And uh, we were discussing right out there in front of the, the field area um, where they were talking about plans of, you know, putting things out. I think at that time it was a Swope Park. And um, your your wife had um, experience with children ministry. And so my wife and her started talking about that. I remember that. Now. Yeah. 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 How long had you been at Paseo Baptist at that point? Not even a year yet. I got to Paseo okay. in September 2009. Okay. And so that following 2010 summers when we had that that first gotcha. Convo of Hope. Okay, cool. Yeah. Good, good. So it's been over a decade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. So, uh, yeah, so Greg came to Kansas City uh, taking over one of the uh, very famous historic black churches in Kansas City, Paseo Baptist Church. Right following uh one of charles briscoe yeah, yeah. Pastor charles briscoe who had, had been there for over 50 years yeah right yeah, yeah. well he he often for, for over the course of his tenure he was there he pastored there about 37 he was associate pastor there he senior pastored 37 years and he okay. came back and did five more years and so over the course of his tenure he was there about 50 years yeah yeah but uh when i moved here in 1990 i I met Pastor Briscoe. Oh, yeah, he was a the man then. Yeah. 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 Pastor Briscoe was doing racial reconciliation discussions before it's uh, um, popular. As a matter of fact, um, you know, Colonial Ted Nissen, um, being the pastor of Colonial, that kind of really helped it grow. Him and Pastor Briscoe were have a very great relationship with each other. And so in 1968, when there were um, the riots because of the Martin Luther King assassination, and there were riots in the streets in Kansas City, and people tell stories of um, of um, uh, 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 tanks driving down the Paseo Boulevard. And so Pastor Briscoe and Ted Nissen connected and got the pastors to rally together to, to, to march the streets to bring peace mm. to the streets. So Ted Nissen and Pastor Briscoe uh, did that. Oh, I didn't even, I didn't have that piece of information. That's, yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yep. Very good. Well, um, so let's let's start though. Where'd you grow up? Where were you born? Where'd you grow up? Born and raised yeah. East Austin, Texas. Um, at the time, it was is the inner city uh, of Austin, Texas. It was it was um, you know for for people in Kansas City, it would be your Troost, um Prospect area. You know, it was you know high crime, high drug rate, um, low education rate. Um, in that area um but you know the lord blessed me to have parents that uh through the tough times stayed together so i grew up you know my father being very close and my 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 mom my wife my mom and dad um they just celebrated um you know, 47 48 years of marriage wow. this year cool and um and so yeah yeah where i where i grew up um it was uh, the, the elementary school, Sims Elementary School, which was this elementary school in our neighborhood, you know, was known for providing some of the you know worst gangsters in the city, hmm. you know. Um, but God just kind of had a, I always feel like God had like an arc about being that as much involved in that aspect. Um, I uh, I always had a, a center base. I had a ground, ground zero, you know, of a home base. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so you grew up in a in an urban 
well, African American urban core area in Austin. Is uh-huh. that, is Absolutely. that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The hood. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I grew up in the hood and, um, and what, what were your folks doing? What were their professions? Well, my dad's was, a uh, my dad's majors in music initially. And so he was a band director, uh, eventually got called a pastor by when I was seven years old and my mom went to secretary school. And so she, she did that and kind of bounced around from some jobs here and there, okay. you know, doing that time frame. So, um, yeah. Brothers and sisters? I got one brother. He's seven years younger than I am. So I have one younger brother. Okay. Um, who eventually, after the, 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 the hills and the valleys, um, got a degree in engineering from Prairie View, uh, A&M University mm. in the Houston area. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, just me and him. Okay. You know, growing up in home, it was, it was tough, you know, because my dad, uh, when he got called to ministry, um, pastor the church, that was probably about 25 people, you know, wow. at the, at this peak. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, and so he, you know, we didn't, we, we went out a lot, a lot of times we went without, you know, we went without electricity sometimes. We, um, you know, sometimes I, you know, we sleep at the church, you know, and go home and mm-hmm. shower and change clothes, get ready to go to school. But God always provided, you know, my grandparents, you know, seemed to always drop f- food by the house. And when it's time for school closed, uh, grandma came, and picked us up and took us shopping, mm. you know, but yeah. So, um, it was, it was a lot of rough times, but you know, God just kept kind of showing his hand through the whole process, mm-hmm. um, for me. Um, so yeah. Yeah, that's that's how I grew up there, and um, I don't know how far you. Well, did you did you go through elementary, junior high, and high school in Austin? I did. Yeah, and I went through. That's what I was about to talk uh, talk about. Is that um, you know, I was in elementary school around the time frame where busing to you know the the idea behind um, providing a better education for these inner city youth. Um, so they basically put us on buses and, and bust us out to suburban schools, um, which didn't make sense to me because I stood on a bus stop in front of an elementary school on my way to an elementary school. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And um, when they got to the elementary school, so that started about when I was in second grade. Okay. Um, being bussed out to um, Barton Hills um, Elementary School. To a white school. S- suburban Austin, Texas. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. segregation just recreated itself because, you know, they started doing honors classes and, you know, gifted and talented and that kind of deal. So most of the kids who were on that, on that bus ride uh, out to Barton Hills did not have the capability of passing those tests. And so you had you know, us getting off the bus and we all go down this hallway, you know, where the regular classes were and all the white kids' cars would drop them off and they all go down this hallway where the gifted and talented classes were. So you ended up having this segregated thing. Um, difference for me is that I did have a dad who was a um, band teacher, who was a teacher in school. My grandmother was a teacher. And so for Christmas, I didn't get, you know, Transformers and the He-Man and She-Ra dolls and that kind of stuff. I got um, flashcards <laughs> and, and math books. And so by the time I got to first, by the time I got to kindergarten, I was on a first, second grade reading level. Um, so when it was time, when they started doing the busing, I actually tested into the gifted and talented classes. So. It was me and um, Felicia Shaw, me and Felicia Shaw. She was the only other girl. Me and Felicia Shaw were the only black people in this all white hallway all day long. Wow. So I had to learn how to operate in that space so that the teachers didn't see me, you know, just as another um, affirmative action project, but that I had to be there, that I deserved to be there. So I had to speak with articulation. I had to behave myself. I couldn't have an attitude. Um, I was always talkative, so that was always an issue. But um, had to do my work, had to do my work better than everybody else just to prove I was there. Um, and then I had to get on the bus and make sure I still had the language of the streets mm. and fight my way all the way home um, because I was, you know, an Oreo, uh, white on the inside, black on the outside, a zebra or, um, you know, uh, you think you're better than us because you're in those classes. And so I literally had to learn how to fight and hold my own. Uh, that's where I got my sense of humor from. I learned how to make people laugh, you know? Yeah, 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 instead yeah. of fighting. But I had to live in those two worlds and that was all the way until probably about the 11th grade. Yeah. 
Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Yep. So did you you went out of, out of high school? You went to college. Yeah. Which college did you go to? I went to Texas State. Texas State in San Marcos, Texas. Um, I wanted to go. I'm a Longhorn. I'm I'm a Longhorn at heart. Yeah. Still, because that's where I grew up. Um, but um, the opportunity presented itself for me to play college sports, and I wasn't quite tall enough to make the football team in Texas, uh, but I was fast enough to make the Texas the team at Texas State. Okay. <laughs> so I was played it football a there. Division two school. No, Division one. Yeah, division yeah. Texas one. State was Division one. Okay. Yeah, it was a small Division one at the time. Um, and you were, what position were you playing? I did like kickoff return, kickoff in college mostly. And then, um, you know, I was a, a running back, a cornerback. So okay. those skill positions kind of things. Um, and then track was my love. So that's actually why I, I went there because of the opportunity to to be, uh, you know, prominent on a track team. And then I played football, ended up leaving football and um, doing track full time because I got tired of getting my butt yeah. bone hurt. <laughs> yeah. yeah, watch your your hands here on the table. Like, yeah, I like speak with my hands. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What about um, track? What were you run? Were you a sprinter? Yeah, yeah. Like you're running the 100, 200? Yeah, yeah. I'm a, I was a four point three seven forty. Wow. Yeah, a hundred ten five twenty one nine wow. two hundred. Um, ran the back leg on the four by one hundred relay nine seven nine point nine seven split. Uh, once, no, it was a 9-7 split. Wow. I ran. Fast, and, fast, uh, fast. Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, no problem. 9-7 um, split. So, yeah, I was a sprinter. So, in football, most of the times, it was like put Greg out on the edge. Yeah. You know, run the long haul, and we're going to run the ball down the middle. I know. Yeah. <laughs> Just get him down the, down the field. Cool stuff. So, what at some point, did you feel called to ministry? What, what, I didn't. How did that happen? Or, well, <clears throat> that happened my last my last year in college my senior year you know and um even kind of leading up to that a little Just bit where your family was your dad was a pastor my dad started pastor when i was seven what kind of church was like i said it was a it was a small church um like baptist church or yes baptist church webberville okay. road baptist church okay. you know, east side austin texas um still there he's still pastoring there and um wow i i uh um you know he needed the he needed a musician and so he taught me how to play. He was, he was a major music, so I learned how to play the piano while I was 12 years old. Started, I was his uh, minister of music at 14, started playing for him and, um, you know, doing that. And, um, you know, and so then when I got off, went off to college, I, um, he got me a job, a friend of his, pastor of the church down there. So he got me a job playing the piano for a church there in town. And, um, you know, I tell people that, that the playing the piano was an anchor that kept me from going too far. Cause I've, you know, we go out and party um, Friday night and Saturday night. And, you know, I did get caught up in the party scene, you know, in college. Mm -hmm. um, and um, to party a little too much. And after my second year, I actually had to go back home. Um, did a year laying carpet with my <laughs> uncle, Uncle George in the summer of Austin, Texas. And if you ever need any motivation to get back into school, lay carpet, lay carpet in Austin, summer. Texas in the summer. Oh. And then that summer, my mom came to me and she said, if you want to go back to school, I want to pay for you to get back in. So she took money out of her retirement. I said, Mama, I want to go. Uh, got me back into school. And... Um, and you know, over the course of that time, um, met my wife. Yeah. So, um, funny thing is that we I, I signed up for anthropology class, and it was the wrong anthropology class. So I graduated three extra credits, and the only yeah. thing I got out of that class was a wife. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, met her there, and. Um, she had a, um, she's from Dr. Tony Evans's church. That's where she had come from. So she grew up with a morality, you know, not necessarily having biblical knowledge as much as I did from being in Sunday school my whole life. Um, but um, she, you know, when I started dating her, a lot of the things I was doing, the people I was hanging around with, she kind of gave me an ultimatum. And I tell people, God made my wife so beautiful that I had one choice. <laughs> <laughs> so I started hanging around with her more. And uh, she convinced me to join the gospel choir. And so join the gospel choir, start changing some of my bad habits and um, focusing my attention on that. And um, one, um, we were at a gospel concert and the guy was preaching and he started, um, at the end of the message, started presenting the gospel. And, uh, you know, he starts 
putting his hands out and just nailing the nails in Jesus' hands. He said, Tink, Tink, can you hear the nails? He's that, you know, and I remember sitting there and uh, feeling like God said, this is what I did for you and this is the life you give me, you know, and I just started weeping. And um, my girlfriend, Selena, at the time, leaned over and she said, you want me to walk down with you? <laughs> you know, so I went down, rededicated my life, um, started teaching, you know, Sunday school at the church and that kind of deal. And people would come to me and they'd say, you know, uh, you sound like a preacher. Your dad's a preacher. You're going to be a preacher. You know, all those kind of things. And I was just kept, you know, because my whole life, my dad always said, whatever you do, don't be a preacher. Yeah. <laughs> my whole right. life. From every meeting, from every Wednesday night, you come home, whatever you do, don't be a preacher. And so, um, so I was, I stopped, um, so I started fasting well, one week. I was fasting. I was just praying. I was like, God, if you want to call me, you're going to have to call me because I don't, I'm not, I don't want to go, you know? And, um, and I would just pray that prayer for a whole week and fasted. And at the end of that week, that following Sunday, I um, was going to church, you know, playing the piano. And I got off the piano and the organist was Sister Jones. And Sister Jones was one of those black mamas, you know, Pentecostal mamas with the gold hat, matched the gold purse and the gold suit and the gold shoes and, uh -huh. you know, shouted the drop of a bucket. Uh -huh. And um, she got off the organ and she starts walking toward me. And I just kind of sensed like, it was like this glow about her. Something was just strange. And so I'm trying to avoid her. I'm looking around <laughs> at different places. And she comes up to her and she bear hugs me. And she said, God wants you to be a preacher, not because your dad's a preacher, not because you sound like a preacher, not because people think you're a preacher, but God wants you to preach because he's sending you. Now go. Mm. And I said, okay, I go, you know, and of course I broke down and the pastor at the time, Pastor Franklin said, let's go call your dad. You know, so we went into the office and I called my dad and I said, I just got my call to ministry. And he said, um, well, it couldn't happen to a better person, you know, and I said, but my whole life, you've always said, you know, don't be a preacher, don't be a preacher, you know, you know, what's, what's the deal? And he said, I wanted God to call you, not me, mm. you know? And so started preaching then. That was um, uh, 1999, November, 1999. And I preached my, my first sermon. Interesting. Yeah. 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 Um, so that, so where, cause you wound up at, at, uh, in Dallas. Yeah. Right. So, so your wife, so you met your future wife yep, in college. I met, I met my wife and, uh, um, she was your future wife. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and she was from Dallas. Yeah. And Tony, Tony, Tony Evans was her pastor. Okay. Yeah. Tony Evans was a pastor. My father-in-law is his barber. Okay. <laughs> and so, so just, just for those who don't know, this is one of the really famous black churches in America, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And Most people know his daughter more than him now, Priscilla Shire. Oh. Okay. <laughs> Which, you know, we're like, oh, Priscilla Shire's dad used yeah. to be the other way around, Tony Evans. That's right. basically um, whatever level you see Priscilla Shire on, he was 10 times that, okay. you know, in the 90s and 2000s. Yeah yeah. yeah. yeah, so how did you wind up after college? You got married? And yeah, so we got married, um, that year and um her father wanted me to do my marriage counseling with dr tony evans and nice. so you know we would um we got married and stayed in austin for um you know because i was i was an auditor i graduated from when i graduated i started doing auditing for the state of texas i was an auditor at tax texas natural resource conservation commission you know basically um and i audited for them um, and we would drive to Dallas on the weekends to do uh, marriage counseling sessions mm -hmm. with them. And um, in the marriage counseling sessions, you know, I got my call to preach at that time too. And so he asked me, have I thought about Dallas Theological Seminary? And I told him, no, I hadn't thought about it. And so me and my wife went and visited and immediately we were like, this is where we're supposed to be. And so it was really one of those kind of Abraham, like go to the place I'll show you kind of deals. Cause mm -hmm. we packed up and moved to Dallas and I didn't have a job and she didn't have a job. And so uh, Dr. Evans, one of the things he asked me to do um, was to present a budget. And so I was like, shoot, I just graduated accounting degree, uh, you know. Your personal budget? Yeah, okay. yeah, he wants to know where your money's gonna go okay. as a couple. And so I turned, you know, I got the Excel worksheet, the numbers follow the numbers, color coordinated and all yeah. that stuff. It's, and um, he looked at it and he said, you did this? <laughs> I said, yes, sir. He said, you need a job? 
<laughs> I said, yes, sir, I do. And so he told me to go down to the Urban Alternative, you know, the next week and uh, got hired on as an accountant um, for Dr. Evans's ministry. And um, my wife got a job as a teacher there and, you know, ended up moving there and going to Dallas Theological Seminary. So and then you work on a, a Master of Divinity at Dallas? It, 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 they had the two-year Master of Divinity, three-year Master of Divinity, and a four-year THM mm -hmm. program. I did the THM okay. um, Master's in Theology. Okay. Um, and uh, it was the worst of times, and it was the best of times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was a hard, it was rough. I mean, it was it was a rough program, um, but you literally go through every passage of Scripture in the Bible. You know, you four semesters of Hebrew, five semesters of Greek, the whole drill. Um, and I don't, I don't regret any of it, yeah. but... Yeah. Who who like who were some of your favorite professors while you were there? Well funny thing is Chuck Swindoll became the president of the seminary in my first semester. Yeah, I remember um, that. But uh, one of my favorite was Mark Bailey. Um and Mark Bailey, you know, most people know about the uh, Swindolls and um the Dr. Pentecost and um I forget the other one, this world famous um professor at Dallas that um, people know about, but, um, several from there. Yeah, actually. several, yeah. but, yeah, um, yeah. um, Mark Bailey became the president midway through cause Swindoll was trying to plant a church and pastor, uh, and, and be president of Dallas seminary at the same time. Right. Eventually after about two years, he ended up passing it. But Dr. Bailey will begin his class with prayer and people would rush in just to hear him pray. Huh because of just how the, the eloquence of it. And it just seemed like that there was a moment that you just saw him and God talking. And, um, and so I really just enjoyed going there and, um, and then listening to him pray before mm. class started. So yeah, I'll say that's probably cool. one of my favorite. Very cool. Yeah. So, and did you, did you end up being on, you were on staff there as a, an accountant at Dr. Evans's ministry, yeah. His ministry. Yeah, yeah. While you were going through seminary. While I was going through okay. seminary, yeah. And I was only, I, I did that probably Were you attending that church as well? Yeah. We what were, was the name of that church? Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship. Oak Cliff. Yeah, Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship is the name of the church. Yeah. And um, and so, but the ministry was, it was two different entities, you know, with the uh, Urban Alternative kind of being an umbrella to the church. And so I worked for the ministry side um, for about two or three years. And... Um, you know, it's one of those deals, especially in the business aspect of ministry, where they pay you for 30 hours, would you work 50, mm -hmm. you know? And so it got to the point where I was doing more work than studying, you know, leaving Greek class and going to deal with spreadsheets. <laughs> <laughs> it can get to be a lot. Right. Um, and so after a while, I felt led that I was, it was time for me to go. And I started doing some, um, you know, pulpits feel for some of the little church, smaller churches around town um, until uh, one of the guys I was on staff with at the ministry was actually a member of a, a traditional Baptist church in Dallas called St. John. And St. John was, you know, it was, it was the preparation ground for my, for my assignment at Paseo. It was a 125 year old church, well established, had a historical black pastor, you know, that was very prominent in the city. And, um, and the person that was on staff who came in to pastor their church uh, was from Kansas City, Leroy Armstrong, and had a chance to meet him. And God's like, this is the person I want you know, you to follow. And so I left there and I did my internship with him because I wanted to do my internship at a church that I was most likely going to pastor. And, um, and so I did my, so, so this Leroy Armstrong mm -hmm. was, where was he from in Kansas city? He was at a heart Wallace Hartsfield's church. Okay. Yeah. 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 yeah Metropolitan Baptist church. Right. Yeah. So he was at a Hartsfield's uh, church Okay. and, um, you know, Hartsfield and Briscoe are contemporaries. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, we did that. I was there with him for about four years. And then about the uh, fourth year, um, it was a fight from the very beginning, from jump start. And uh, I did, went there to do my internship. He uh, had a position open up for business manager. He's like, Greg, you qualify for this. You know, first I told him no. And then my wife got pregnant. Then I say, is that job still open? <laughs> and so I became the pastor of administration you know, at 26, 24, 26 years old, something like that. And uh, um, 
I remember, you know, I'm this 25 year old, 26 year old kid in there and having 90 year old women come in there, you know, talking about, how'd you get such a prestigious job like this? Mm-hmm. And I said, uh, ma'am, you know, only by the grace of God, you know, and she <laughs> said, I remember her, she said, um, well, if you mess with the money, I kill you with my own hands. <laughs> <laughs> and I told her, ma'am, I'm more afraid of God than I am of you, yeah. you know, but, um, so after, after doing that for four years, um, they basically uh, voted him out. It was ugly, you know, with the whole thing, finding Smith & Wesson bullets in your mailbox and, you know, nerdy mail and uh, just the whole drill, having to have security for the business meetings. It was it was rough. Um, and, uh, you know, they voted him out and we went and planted a church. I left with him. We went wow. and planted a church. So I did a church plant for two years. And... Um, and then uh, after two years, uh, Leroy came to me one day and said, hey, Greg, uh, there's this church that's opened up in Kansas City because his family, you know, he's here. His family was at this at church. And um, and so I'm thinking in my head, wow, he's about to go back to Kansas City and leave me with this church plant. Mm-hmm. And he said, I told him I'm planning a church. I wasn't interested, you know. And he said, so I sent him your name. And they send the application in it. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't, cause after that whole church split thing, I was done. I had gotten a job as an, uh, um, a, a, a chaplain. I had bought a home. I was doing a church plant. I had the weekends to myself. I got off at five o'clock. You know, I was living a dream, you know, and I was not trying to move. And of course, when you get comfortable, God just kind of nudges you and um, moved to, um, went to the interview. I filled the application out um, and uh, turned it in with no intent of taking a job at, in Kansas City. And uh, came down for, um, they called me and said, you're one of our top seven candidates. We want you to come in and interview. So I went to that interview back in 2008 with the intent of talking them out of hiring me. Mm-hmm. I went in there and uh, I had nothing to lose. So uh, they sent me their bylaws. I went through the bylaws with you know, a red red pen. This is not gonna work. This is not gonna work. The interview was seven hours. Mm-hmm. Um, five hours of them asking me questions and two hours of me asking them questions. And, um, and um, then they you know, called me back and said, you're one of our top three candidates. And I brought my wife down and uh, we all met and we were on the airplane on the way back. And my wife said, you know God is calling us to Kansas City, don't you? Mm. And I said, yeah, I think so. Wow. <laughs> so ended up accepting that church in 2009, came 2009, here. 2009, Paseo yep. Baptist Church. Yeah. Yeah, so I, <clears throat> when I came to Kansas City, uh, you know, of course I'd grown up here, but then went away to Baylor and mm-hmm. I was in Texas eight years, Virginia for three years, moved back here in 1990, started church. And I remember, you know, just looking around the city and trying to find mentors right. um, that were 20, 30 years ahead of me, you know. Mm-hmm. And so Pastor Briscoe was mm-hmm. one of them. Ted Nissen was one of them. Yeah. Vernon Armitage was one of them. Yeah. Uh, I think even George uh, Westlake, Westlake. Mm-hmm. was one of them. Yep. So the father. Yeah. Yep. So there were, um, you know, several different guys around town that I connected with really early in the early nineties. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know that story about, um, Briscoe and, and Ted? Yeah, Ted yeah. Nissen and Briscoe, because uh, my my mother-in-law had was really close friends with Linda Nissen. Mm. Had, I think set her and Ted up on, on wow. their first date. Yeah. Uh, and and I, wa- I was not familiar with their connection. That's amazing. Yeah, so. I'd have to tell that story when I get back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I see her there. She's at church regularly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Linda Nissen. Well, she she would know me so anyway. yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um how, let's dive into the black church in america yeah, absolutely let's do it for for this audience who's going to be mostly white yeah you know yeah um the, the people that are listening here what's what what's unique about the black church in america the historic black church in america yeah. you know most of our uh white audiences probably maybe even never attended a historic black church yeah. or if they have, they've just popped in on a Martin Luther King Jr. service, service or, something. or something like right. that. Um, you know, it's interesting because since I haven't 
pastored for a few years yeah. now, a brick and mortar church. I, I still do pastor stuff. Absolutely. But uh, I remember the first, uh, I was I was at Macedonia Baptist, mm -hmm. February of 2020, right before COVID hit. Mm -hmm. And so I went, and I was one of about four or five white people attending a black church with maybe over a thousand black people in it. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. And I went through uh, Black History Month Mm, in February, as a white right. person in a black church, February yeah. 2020. Yeah. Okay. Yes. And I, it was so powerful for yeah. me because I had, I'd felt like I'd kind of gotten into my own uh, world of bondage right. a little bit. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and the themes of darkness and bondage. Yeah. Were so woven into and freedom. Yes. From from, slavery, from bondage and slavery. From all that. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it was so woven into the the perspective of the gospel. Yeah, and you know, I you know, I thought about well, there's just so many things that stood out to me. I'm, I sang the Black National Anthem for Absolutely. the first time Lift in my life. Absolutely, every voice and sing. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, God, what a powerful! I went home and almost tried to memorize those lines because yeah. yeah. they were so powerful. Yeah. At any rate, um, and I felt like I had known. You know, I'd been connected with the African American church community for. Oh, way, you know, for more than a decade before that. Yeah. Um, and it felt like I got to know it, but it really, it really, I felt like I got to know it in a deeper way. Yeah. Having participated as a. Yeah. Well, the black church is a very accepting church, you know, um, for a white person stepping into that <laughs> space. Um, even, you know, after, you know, now, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but the black church has been the cornerstone of the black community. Um, the black church was where the civil rights movement um, started. Um, you know, it was uh, Dr. Reverend Martin Luther King and uh, Reverend Al Sharpton and Reverend Jesse, Jane, Jesse Jackson and, you know, all these people um, where the black church <clears throat> is where significance happens, which is a lot of reason why it's hard to transition a black church um, as a black pastor. Um, young black pastor because you have people who found their significance in a black church where you were boy and maybe the n-word all week long when you got to the church you were deacon and elder and pastor mister and sir um, and so your value and your significance was created in the black church and the black church experience and so when you try to transition to put people in other those positions you feel like you take an identity away from people um, <clears throat> but there's a there's a difference in worship you know, you there's a worship that uh, I like to call it the worship of the oppressed, mm -hmm. songs of the oppressed. You know, you sing from a different place mm -hmm. where you've been um, well, cast down and put down and um, and trodden on. You know, when you sing in, um, you know, Amazing Grace, it sounds differently in a black church than Amazing Grace does in a white church because you, you're singing from a, um, a, a groaning of, of places um, of having gone through or not just saying um, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, but I've experienced that amazing grace. And I've, I've heard the sound of God's voice when I couldn't hear anything else. You know, um, there's, um, there's a worship that's there that's celebratory because uh, I don't have to live for the pain that I have to deal with week to week by being called out of my name, but there's a better place for me. And so the experience of the black church has always been celebratory. The preaching, the singing, it's a celebration that comes from my African roots. Um, and so that space is there. It's where kids learn how to read. It's where kids learned professionalism. It's where kids learn how to interact with the white community, how to behave yourself. Um, and so the black church has been the pinnacle of the black community uh, for years and it, and it still is um, my fear though is now um, that the, the, at least the traditional black church um, if it does not adjust as you know most traditional churches do if the black church traditional church doesn't adjust uh, there's a fear of extinction for me for because um, there's a new generation of black uh kids, uh, young adults who are not associated as closely with the civil rights movement. And now with the rebirth of a civil rights movement is more founded in a Black Lives Matter um, uh, organizational role than it is in a black church, where in a lot of cases, 
the in conversations I have with people who are civil rights activists, um, um, organize, community organizers, asking the question, where is a black church? Why do you just show up when the cameras show up? That person doesn't speak for me. That person hasn't been in this pain. That person is using my pain to exploit uh, for their own purposes. And so that, that aspect of it, I think, um, has to be adjusted and leaders, um, you know, like myself and John Brooks and others, you know, hopefully providing an, uh, an alternative to that perspective. But yeah, yeah, the black churches, you know, <clears throat> it's, it's a pinnacle. It's, it's where leadership began for the black community. Yeah. You yeah. Know? It's, it's interesting. I even like most, uh, I, I'll do interviews with black rappers in Kansas city. Yeah. Yeah. Black musicians. And even, even if they're, uh, even if their music in the hip hop world is doesn't sound very Christian. Yeah, yeah. Nine nine out of ten times they started in the church. Oh, most definitely. Almost always. Yeah. They started. Rita Franklin, Whitney Houston. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, even your big rappers. Oh yeah. You know. They, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mama took them to church and they started in the church, you know, choir yeah. or whatever it was. And yeah. uh yeah, with the the big the big Texas rapper that's um, got international. Uh, I forget his name. Not Texas, Kansas City rapper. Um, Tech Nine. Tech Nine. Yeah. yeah, that's why I said Texas. I was known as Tech, yeah, but it's yeah. Tech. Yeah, Tech yeah. Nine. He'll begin in the church. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think you know, having grown up in a white Southern Baptist church in suburbs of Kansas City, mm -hmm. um, you know, I. Growing up, I didn't understand the the struggle yeah. that that black people went through in America. Yeah, and I think um, I think because I'm I'm you know I didn't grow I was a little bit too young mm. to have the f feeling of the civil rights movement right. of the '60s. Like I was born in '61. Right? Yeah, right. And so. Um, I remember like I went to Park Hill High School mm -hmm. and there were there were about three black families yeah. at Park Hill High School. Mm. Hoskins. Yeah. Turners, <laughs> right, Pearls. you know who they were, right. Well, when we, we were all did sports together. Exactly. You know, I we got along great and yeah. I I didn't you know, from my experience with them, yeah, I wouldn't have known what their perspective was right. on, on issues of racism. Yeah, and they were taught not to let you know that. They didn't ever yeah. talk about Yeah, they were taught that that when I, you go into that space as a black kid in a predominantly white space, right. you know your place and you know the conversation. And when you come back home, we'll talk about it. If I saw any of them today, we'd hug and yeah. how you doing and all that kind of stuff. And, and like, so in my brain, there was no problem. Right. So I'm one of these white people who could have easily grown up and think, well, what's the problem? What's racism? We're past that. Absolutely. We're past that. Yeah. And, but once I started immersing myself in the black community and the black church community, I don't have, you know, and I, you know, now I've got so many relationships in that world. Yeah. And I, I don't have one friend, Greg, that didn't grow up mm -hmm. knowing racism firsthand yeah well as a black person in america and you're looking at one who has also experienced racism firsthand firsthand, firsthand. you're educated you're yeah. smart yeah you're a good athlete yeah you were in white schools yeah you're in I, white seminary yeah you're in black church yep black church black neighborhood black experience you experience and you talk about that a little bit you're yeah because yeah, no. A lot of people want to, hey, we've had a black president. There's no yeah. problem. There's no white supremacy. It's all fine. What are you guys fussing about? You know, all well, that kind of crap. <laughs> Sorry for that. <laughs> true. But I had the unfortunate experience of act actually witnessing that firsthand before a lot of my counterparts did because I was the only black kid in all white schools in the late 70s and 80s early 80s whereas the black people who got on that bus that i was talking about that went down that black hallway they had one culture that was brought up in the white people with the teachers the way they you know treated them whatever was dismissive because i'm getting back on this bus and going back to my neighborhood um and so they 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 may have experienced it from a top-down perspective whereas in my 
you know, second grade classroom, you know, I had kids making fun of the clothes I wear, you know, um, uh, calling me, you know, um, names and um, treating me. You know, I remember getting invited to a party. When I got to the party, um, certain people there didn't want me to play in some of the same games other people played in, you know, because I was the only black kid at this all white party. Um, when I was in the seventh grade, um, had a teacher um, use the word nigger in front of me, you know, and it was, it was, and it was, it was, I was in the seventh grade, I was in English class and my English teacher at the time, she was explaining, we were going through a book, I believe, While the Cage Bird Sings or some book that was based in early America. And, um, she's explaining the context of the book and she comes right by my desk and she stands there and she looks down to me and she says, this is when they call black people niggers. You know, and all the the whole classroom just turned and looked at me, you know, and I remember I looked back up at her and I said, I ain't no nigger. <laughs> I didn't know how else to respond, yeah. you know, and um, and so that was, you know, early on when I realized how, how different I was, you know, um, being followed in grocery stores, having um, issues with watching you because they thought you might steal something. Of course. So, I, well, I had one guy kicked me out and said, I stink. He said, you stink. You get out. You stink. You know, um, having that experience being pulled over by police officers, harassed for, for, for what I thought was no reason maybe they felt like it was um one of the worst experiences i had though was after i was married and it was actually back in 2006 when um i was in austin <clears throat> i was living in dallas drove uh, went to austin to do a youth revival and um at the end of the week i the pastor you know in the black church they take the the revivalists out to dinner at the end of the week so we went to eat and i was staying at a friend's house in austin there i get in my car and i call my wife uh on the phone and i'm driving and in the in the rearview mirror i see this car it just seems like it's floating on air because it's driving so fast now i remember saying man that car is going bam and it hit me and um Dropped the phone, car spinning, it came to a stop. You know, first thing you do is you check your arms and your legs, make sure everything's still there. And then I looked out my window and there's this um, black man, looked like he was probably about 6'3". <clears throat> he had dreadlocks uh, in his head. He had on a camouflage. I remember like Dr. Jesse had a camouflage tank top on and he had on red jeans. And he was laying flat, passed out on the concrete underneath the 18-wheeler that he had pinned in between and my car just stopped right before I ran into the 18 wheeler itself. You know, I was like angelic. And so I saw that and I'm, you know, I get nervous cause the, the um, airbag smoke is all over the place. So I'm just trying to bang the car door open and I bang the car door open and I run out the car and there's about 15 cops running at me with guns pointing me in the face saying, get out, get out, get out, get on the ground. So I throw my hands in the air and say, I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. And then I get out. So I get down. Now, mind you, I just preached a youth survival. So I got on a green suit um, and I put on a whole three, three piece that day with mm -hmm. the vest and everything, tie, um, dress shoes, the whole deal. And, um, get on the ground. And so I get down and the guy comes and puts his knee in my back, you know, and everyone wow. sees that, that picture of George Foreman. And I was like, yeah, George. you know, I mean, George uh, Floyd. Floyd. And um, he put his knee in my back and then he put my hands behind my back and he put me in handcuffs. And I'm laying in the middle of I-35 in Travis County in Austin, Texas on the ground. And it got the uh, canine unit comes over and the dog's there and he lets the dog go. And the dog bites my back. Sorry. Oh. The dog bites my back and he's just going at it. And I'm yelling, I didn't do anything. Stop. I didn't do anything. And then finally they take the dog off and I get up and the officer comes up to me and says, sorry, we thought you were the other person, mm. you know, and I end up having to get seven stitches. And to this day right now, every time I take my shirt off, I got the picture of a dog's bite from the scab from the stitches in my back. Yeah. And um, so when um, George Floyd's uh, murder happened, um, you know, I told my story to Colonial because I wanted them to know that this is not a once in a lifetime incident. This is not something that haphazardly happens. This is something that for a while, black people have been having to experience on a regular basis. And um, I tell people, you know, when they ask me about the experience, I say, I think, I think it was, I thank God it was a dog because they could have shot me, mm -hmm. you know? And um, 
And so from that experience, you know, um, early on, even now, you know, driving at night, I have PTSD when cars pull up behind me, when cops pull up behind me still, I have to go through the check process. My insurance is up to date. Uh, all my lights are fixed. I got my seatbelt on. Like there's nothing for me to be nervous about with this police behind me. And I still have to do that to this day because of that interaction. And that's yeah. just one of many. Yeah. <laughs> I Honestly, I, ha I have no uh, black friends I've been in a relationship with who can't tell me multiple stories of firsthand experience of yeah. uh, racism in, in the country for all over the country. Yeah. You know, not, not just in the South even. Yeah. You know? No. So, um, so I'm, yeah. So it's, 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 it's a deal. It's well, it's been deal. like when I moved here to Kansas city, yeah. I moved North and yeah. I stayed in the, I don't know if I can say the side of town or whatever. Uh, me. Yeah. I stayed in Clay County, moved into Clay County and I used in Clay, I lived in Clay Como. Um, and in the first six months of, I was here, I was pulled over six times. Um, one time I was pulled over because it said my license plate was crooked. <laughs> um, once I was pulled over because he said I looked suspicious because I had a hoodie on in the car. Oh, no. You know, it got to the point where my wife would tell me to take different routes home, you know, because of, you know, being pulled over right here in, in, yeah. in, in, uh, in Kansas City right. in 2010. Mm. Um, I was driving one day uh, down Paseo, about to park in my parking spot. Police officer pulls me over, says my car looks like a car they were looking for. Um, and he begins to, you know, ask me for my license plate and, and registration. And so in Texas, that's your driver's license and your insurance card. That's all I, you know, where's your registration? I know what you're talking about. I never asked anybody asked me for anything other than that. He just kept yelling at me. I was like, what do you, what do you want? What do you want? And my wife's on the phone and she's like, just calm down. And I was like, but I don't know what he wants. And then, so finally I just reached in the glove compartment and I just grabbed everything out of it and gave it to him. You know, he was wanting the whole packet cause he was trying to make sure I didn't steal the car. And then he says, um, and I'm looking at him like, dude, my name is on that sign right there. <laughs> you know, you're looking at my driver's license. My name is on that sign right, right there. The church sign. Just and then, he, then as he walks off, you know, he he hands me my license plate and says, "I should have got you for not having your seatbelt on." And I was like, "I'm parked. I'm, I'm. This is my parking. The black church. The pastor has a parking space. I'm in my parking space. He pulls up behind me. You know, yeah. that's right after I got into Kansas City. Mm. You know, so it's south." It's Midwest, yeah. at least for me. I don't know if it follows me, but I've experienced it well, I, in a number of places. Yeah, you're not alone. I can say that. So let's let let's. Uh, I'm trying to think how. So you, what's interesting? You came here mm -hmm. to a historic black church. Yeah, pastored there for s several eight years, years. Eight years. Then you transitioned over to basically historic suburban white church, yes. colonial Presbyterian church. Right. And you've been on staff there now five, for- Five years to the date, almost. Five years. Yeah, so this past lived, weekend. You've lived in the South. Yeah. You've lived in the black church. Yeah. You have now pastored for five years- In, in a white church. Basically a white suburban church. Mm -hmm. All of these churches, I think, would probably be more- evangelical uh, conservative uh, in terms of their bible theology yep but what's what's interesting to me is is like i've been hanging you know i've always had great relationships with all the churches in the city mm -hmm. i would have been more my history had been more in the evangelical community but some of my progressive pastor friends in my opinion <laughs> mm -hmm. have gotten some of the social justice issues right yeah more so than than a white church my own evangelical group background white evangelical churches so you know, we've got this progressive church mm -hmm. uh, we could even talk here in kansas city but mm -hmm. this is true across america. across america yeah we've got our, our historic black churches and um you've experienced both yeah and yet you've you've never pastored like in a progressive uh Church, Christian church, but no, not per se. <laughs> but you, you've got lots of relationships that way because you find those people partnering with you in, in, in issues of racism, civil rights issues, yeah, racism, you know, those kind of things. Yeah, well, you know, the white suburban church would um, almost consider the um, the black Baptist church progressive because of the um, heavy 
uh, lean towards the social justice aspect of it. So in that perspective, it's progressive. In a lot of cases, even though I consider myself cons- conservative, but there are some things that I feel like should be done that people would consider progressive to me, mm-hmm. you know, or to them. And like what? Uh, um, like healthcare. Yay! <laughs> Yay! <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, um, like, like, um, uh, like uh, wealth, like assets, like um, economic um, uh, issues, like, um, you know, single moms and um, job opportunity, uh, wealth disparity, education disparity. I mean, you go down the list, you know, and a lot of times, you know, I've had conversations with very conservative people that if those, they just get an education. There's a school, they just get an education. That's what they need. You know, and then the school's there and they're not in school and they're not behaving. That's their fault. The education is provided for them, you know, and I want to say, okay, we'll enroll your kid in that school. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, if it's education, it's education. Yeah. You know, um, so so I've had, I've I've seen where the conservative black church can be viewed as a progressive church. I think I think that's a a, a good, a, you know, a good analysis there because, um, you know, I, you know, like so I grew up white evangelical, pro life, mm-hmm. uh, and. The, you know, when Reagan hit the scene, the pro-life Republicans really took over that pro-life platform, right? Right. So that was, I was kind of like one of these one issue kind of people. But the longer I studied issues of justice and scripture, the longer I looked at and dove into all of these kind of issues, the more and more and more I, like, I think people begin to what I was because Absolutely. I would, I'd be preaching some things where I probably sounded very Democrat and other yeah. times when I sounded Republican, but I wasn't trying to be political so much as just biblical. Yeah. 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 And if you're biblical, it takes you to some places that make you look very, very, uh, yeah. You could be accused of being, having being socialist. Yeah. Of, 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 <laughs> of, of teaching critical race theory. Uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 And, but what you're trying to do is, is fulfill, I mean, Jesus picked up on the themes of justice. Absolutely. At Matthew 25 and on and on and on. And on. He, he picked that prophetic banner up. And that, to me, the black church in America has, has picked that banner up as well. Yeah, we so, had to. Yeah, you had to. Yeah. And so, so I think that I think there's still so much education that needs to go on from a biblical perspective for Christians and for white Christians in America that, absolutely that, uh, you know, and, and I think if we could learn to listen to, uh, what the black theologians have to say, Mm -hmm. the whole church would be in a better place. Absolutely. And, And, and understanding you know, and Dr. Evans uh, speaks about this in his book, One is Embrace, which is another great book, um, where he says the black church has wrapped its um, identity in social justice and the white church has wrapped its identity in the flag. Neither one of them are right. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where you have the extreme in the sense of there is um Sometimes it could be that progressive uh, anti-America feel. That's not what the heart is, but it can feel that way. Um, and then it also can be this anti-justice feel. It may not be in the heart, but it feels that way because of the the strong stance on mm-hmm. things. And um, and 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 both of them, I, both extremes, uh, hurt everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, um, but we have to 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 be truthful about things. You know, like the prison. The, um, the preschool to prison, you know, yeah. pipeline and um, and the war on drugs, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, people are always talking to me. The problem with the black community is not um, the white people. It's, it's the problem with the black community is the, the lack of fathers. Mm-hmm. And I always ask, you know, one of the um, illustrations that was given to me at a uh, race and equity conference was if you go to a lake and you find a dead fish, say something's wrong with that fish. The next day you go to that same lake and you find another dead fish. You say, you know what? These two fish have something wrong with them. If you go back and all the fish are dead, at some point you got to say something's wrong with this lake. Right? (laughs) So 
I always ask that all the black fathers get up one day and say, you know what? I'm done with this whole fathering thing. I'm just going to leave my home. And so all of a sudden, fatherlessness in the black community is an issue because all the fathers decided we wasn't going to be fathers or something wrong with the lake. And if you look back into it, you got to at least bring some um, some some uh, attention to what happened when, um, you know, and I won't go into that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when the cocaine hit the scene, you know, and it was a slap on the wrist for the white community. It was cracked up in, in black neighborhoods. And what was given three years here was given a five year minimum um, to to life, you know, and all of a sudden now you have all these people where this was just a misdemeanor, this is a felony, and now you have them get out of jail and try to apply for jobs and they can't get a job because they have a felony on their record, they can't provide for their families, and so in a lot of cases they end up back in jail and you don't have fathers in the places, and then you say, those fathers need to go home and be with their kids. Say, yeah, but we send a whole generation to jail, put felonies on their records, now we're trying to tell them to become fathers. Let's just acknowledge the fact that we had something to do with this. And I think that lack of acknowledging the part the church had to do with that mm. is what hurts the black community and creates separation. Yeah, yeah. So many issues, right? <laughs> I mean, you think about the school systems, yeah, and you know the, the, the discrepancy in the quality of education. Absolutely. Um, how many black kids graduate from high school who can't read? Ah, uh, absolutely. You know, yeah. And 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 what's going on there? Yeah. In the discrepancy. Absolutely. Um, yeah. The you know the Richard Nixon, you know, is on tape. Mm -hmm. um, put making marijuana a schedule one drug yeah. as a political strategy to put <laughs> Latinos and blacks in prison yeah. so they can't vote. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Like, I mean, that's, well, that's documented. Well, and that's, that's why- it's Documented. That's why in the conservative church, this push against um, uh, the um, the the removal, the expungement of records, so that people can get driver's license, and these things are are hard pressed because you know, um, I you know I helped sponsor a, a voter registration drive uh, a few years ago, and the question was asked me why was I doing that, and I said because I want people to vote. Right. <laughs> You know, me sponsoring uh, a voter registration drive mm -hmm. somehow had this sense like I was trying to push some liberal agenda or mm -hmm. something. Right. You know, and yeah. that and that kind of hard pressed extremism, I think, is what create continues to create separation. Yeah. 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 There's just oh my goodness. There's so many issues, and uh, my 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 concern, maybe it's a fear, is that. In the last six years, the white evangelical church has become maybe even more blind in mm -hmm. America to issues of racism mm -hmm. than they have been historically. You know, I mean, there's always been a blindness. Absolutely. And, and I can confess to that mm -hmm. because of the way I grew up. And I, my, you know, I saw my dad was from Wichita, Kansas. And okay. He never he never bumped into somebody that, that wasn't an equal. Yeah. You know? Right. So I wasn't like taught racism in the home, but when I, when I realized how I grew up with, without a black perspective, mm -hmm. you know, and like I said, even in my high school, my, I had black friends, but mm -hmm. they never talked about what they really went through yeah. behind the scenes. Right. You know, so, so I would say that, that even coming out of seminary, yeah, uh, white, white evangelical college, white evangelical seminary, white evangelical churches, yeah, I had a huge blindness to the racial issues. Even though in my own heart, I wouldn't have thought I was a racist, or I wouldn't have thought I had participated in any way, yeah, in 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 the in the in the problem. And I probably would have bought into some of these things. Well, yeah, well, like yeah. they have. Why don't they go to work? Right. Why don't they do this? Why right. Don't they do that. You know yeah. what I mean? Like yeah. these little simple yeah, fixes. answers as though, as though there isn't any kind of systemic yeah. injustice built into the system. The hardest, one of the hardest to deal with is um, we just need the gospel. 
<laughs> right. You know, and you know, we just need the gospel. We need all this other stuff is distractions, you know, dealing with these um, social justice issues. All of those are distractions. We just need to give people the gospel. But people fail to realize that the gospel is used to make really good slaves in that uh, in America in America yeah. and in the production of the slave Bible. You know, you've heard the slave Bible and yeah. certain sections of the Bible being taken out like Exodus, you know, anything that deals with being freed for any reason. And so um, the gospel was always preached. We adapted it to our situation. Mm-hmm. Um, but just it is dismissive when people say we just need the gospel because it, then it seems to take away the fact that we've always had the gospel. So what happened, you know, and that um, that there is some responsibility that America has to take in the role that is played um, in these disparities. Mm-hmm. And we can't just, you know, say these are distractions. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I appreciate your heart for the for the ministry, for the gospel, for social justice. Yes, sir. I appreciate the way um, you've tried to. Uh, well, not just tried, but you've served our city even mm. in many ways, you know, and you've been, you've, you've tried to help push these conversations yeah. uh, into the churches, yeah. into the pastors. Not and, easy. And, you know, even <laughs> in your own church now yeah. at, at yep. Colonial. Um, yeah. yeah. Certainly, you know, it's interesting that COVID hit about the same time as the, as the George Floyd. Thing yeah. It was in the, the election year. It was the perfect storm. Yeah. And so it, seems like it just dialed up the issues yeah with such an intensity yeah well and one th- good thing about the situation that I'm that I'm not situation the church that I'm in now at Colonial uh, back in 2018 our lead pastor Pastor Jim asked me to preach a message in light of the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King mm. and I preached a message uh, entitled uh, he had a dream my and uh, my passage of scripture was John 17, where Jesus said, I prayed it there. One is we, we are one, mm-hmm. and the he who had a dream that I was speaking of was Jesus. Um, he had the dream first, Martin Luther King just picked up the baton and ran with it. And so, from that message, uh, one of the quotes I used in that message is Dr. King saying, It's okay to tell a, a man to pull himself up by his own bootstraps, but it's cruel to tell a bootless man to pull himself up by his own bootstraps. And so, had a group of people come to me um, who said, We wanted to learn more about this. Long story short, over the course of several years, we now have a ministry called Kingdom Oneness, um, where we have catalyst teams in prayer and community development and leadership, um, where we uh, do classes and, and partner with other black churches to create spaces for our church. Cologne, you know, had that conversation. And hopefully, you know, we had invited John Perkins in to speak to our group. And he said, you guys are a prototype of what could be as far as helping the white suburban evangelical, evangelical church have a space to have this conversation. Mm-hmm. And uh, so um, that's that's been a blessing uh, to see God use that ministry to help us move the needle forward. That's cool. That's good. Good. What is your what's your website? A colonial, or are you personally? I don't have a website okay. itself. Okay. <laughs> you can find me on Facebook. Okay, uh, you can find me on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter. Greg, just un- Greg Ely. Greg underscore Ely. Greg um, underscore Ely. Is, is, uh, is my Twitter E-A-L- account Greg E A L E Y. Yeah, I'm on Instagram. I'm not. I'm not a big social media person, you know. So I have it. So I don't tweet or or IG, you know, as much as others. I try, but I. I'm, and I can, I just be honest with you, it, sometimes it can be a distraction. You know what I mean? I don't have any problem with it and I enjoy it and I can do it. Um, but a lot of times I still re- rather have a conversation. You know, for people that are that are tuned in, what are some of the key ministries in Kansas City mm-hmm. that you would really encourage people to learn about and educate? You know, that, where they could get in and help be part of the solution to Absolutely. racism instead of the instead of the part of the problem. problem. Absolutely. And what, are there two or three of those that yeah. you might say, hey, get, check this out, check this out. Check Absolutely, this out. one specifically that I actually helped lead is Unite KC. Uh, Unite KC is um, a organization that was developed by Dayton Moore. 
who after George Floyd got up and um, called uh, Jimmy Dodd from Pastor Serve and said, we got to do something about this. Got a bunch of leaders around the table, begin the discussion. And the Unite KC came to be as um, an organization seeking to do one good thing towards uh, racial reconciliation, racial healing in Kansas City okay. specifically. And we operate off of 10 different domains. You know, I won't go through them all. You can find it on UniteKC.org. Okay. Um, but I help lead the church domain. There's a sports domain. There's a real estate domain. There's a nonprofit domain. So there's a space for you to plug in and find out how you can help do one good thing to help us move the racial reconciliation a conversation ahead. Um, you know, also a part of Pray KC, uh, which we've decided to partner together as a family of people across races. Uh, our board is Hispanic, white, black. What's the yeah. name of this one? Pray KC. Pray KC. Yeah, okay. Pray KC. And um, PrayKC.org? Yeah, PrayKC.org. Okay. And actually, um, this coming Friday night, uh, we will be uh, in KCK. And you can find more information about it uh, on the website. We'll be in KCK. Probably won't come. That'll be over. That will be over then. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway. well, this coming Friday, we'll be doing a prayer gathering specifically around students and teachers um, um, in our uh, inner city schools. You know, uh, so Pray KC um, is, 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 is another one. Um, but yeah, those are the two that I'm kind of really focusing my attention uh, okay. in on right now. And then, you know, if you want to connect with Colonial and find out more about Kingdom Oneness and what okay. we're doing as a church to help the suburban church have the race conversation. Uh, What's the website there? ColonialKC.org. You know, you can also send me an email uh, directly, G-E-A-L-E-Y at ColonialKC.org. Okay. Uh, you can also find that uh, email address on the website. Okay, cool. Yeah. Well, be sure and tell your wife I said hello. I will. And, uh, how I old will. are your kids now? I'm trying to remember. My oldest kid is in college. Wow. I know, right? When you saw my, they were, they were four and seven. Oh my gosh. When you met them. That's crazy. And now they're 16 and 19. My youngest son will be 17 Friday. Ah. <laughs> yeah. And he's a, he's a soft, a junior at Liberty North playing baseball. So. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. We get no Fred. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. Yeah. Well, excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us on Spirituality Adventures and sharing yeah. your story. And uh, thanks for having me. Your heart and all that you uh, have done for Kansas City as well. Yes, sir. You're, you're, you're yeah. a brother in Christ. I appreciate you so yeah. much. I want to give a shout out to my staff, SKC Stay Ready. They know what I mean by that. Okay. <laughs> all right. Excellent. Well, thanks everybody for tuning in to Spirituality Adventures. We're glad that you are joining in with us. We'll see you next time. This concludes today's episode. Thanks for tuning in and listening. Remember, if you're watching on YouTube, subscribe to my YouTube channel. Remember to like, share, or subscribe to the social media platform that you're using. And then go to our website, spiritualityadventures.com and make a one-time donation or you can subscribe monthly and receive our special bonus content. Thanks so much.